turn with me in your Bibles to that passage which we read a moment ago, Esther chapter 1 on page 501. Just while you're doing that, let me flag up an announcement as well that I forgot to make and it's not in our bulletin. As a church, we have joined a scheme called Embrace. And what we hope to do in the months and years ahead is to, to gather together goods and, and clothing in particular that would be useful to particularly the homeless community in Northern Ireland. A number of churches have joined together in a scheme to do this. We'll take more time next week to, to give you a little bit more detail on that. But in a couple of weeks' time, we plan to have our first collection. To help you to prepare for that, there's a, a sheet like this out on the table in the vestibule that gives details of the kind of, uh, of clothing in particular that we want to collect at this first collection. If you're interested in helping us with that, please pick up one of these as you leave this morning. They're on the table there in the vestibule. So that's Embrace on the Street. Sounds like a good idea anyway, doesn't it? Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our God. Amen. We're living in exile. Anyone who's following Jesus Christ in Britain in 2007 is a stranger in a strange land. Not quite at home in the society we find ourselves in. We're exiles. But perhaps you didn't know that. Let me try and explain. For nearly 1,500 years, Europe has been a Christian continent ever since the Roman Emperor uh, Constantine converted to Christianity. And he made it the religion of the empire early in the 4th century. Christianity has been the religion of most of Western Europe. Our rulers have been Christian or have claimed to be. Our laws and our institutions are based on a Christian worldview. And throughout centuries, millions upon millions of Europeans have gone to churches and have worshipped God, the Christian God, and have called themselves Christians. As if that was the most natural thing in the world to do. During this period of Christendom, disciples of Jesus Christ were very much part of the mainstream in many communities. Now there are signs that that has, has been changing and will continue to change in the future. Many of you will be familiar with the book Operation World, which is full of statistics about how strong the Christian church is in various countries. Well, Patrick Johnson, the writer, he says this about Christianity in Europe. For the last 250 years, there has been worldwide advance for the gospel. Yet in this time, a deadening secular humanism has effectively become the dominating force in European society. The decline in church going has been so disastrous that only about a tenth of Europe's population are regular worshippers in the church. Now, he wrote that 30 years ago. 
If you ask me, are a tenth of the population of Europe at worship this morning, I would say, I wish. I would imagine the statistic has, has slipped quite considerably since then. In 2007, we can no longer talk about Europe uh, as a Christian continent, and I'm not sure we can talk about Britain as a Christian country either. There may be some leftover evidence of a Christian influence in our country, but the majority of people in the UK don't seem to have any meaningful relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that's true of the UK, the same is true in Ireland, of course, too. In his recent book, Presbyterians in Ireland, Professor Lawrence Kirkpatrick tells us about the decline in our own denomination. He says, all statistics indicate that the Presbyterian Church in Ireland is in serious decline. Total membership has dropped by 33% in 35 years. Baptisms have dropped by 71%, new communicants have dropped by 49%, and numbers of children in Sunday schools or Bible classes have dropped by 58%. Friends, we are living in exile. Those who follow Jesus in Britain and in Belfast in 2007 should not expect to be part of the mainstream of our culture as we move into the future. We're strangers in a strange land, exiles. All of this prov provides us and challenges us with a huge question. Is it possible, is it going to be possible for God's people to live in this new environment we find ourselves in? Now that we're out of the mainstream of British society, are, are secularism, materialism, relativism, are they inevitably going to cause the death of the people of God? Is it only a matter of time? Are those statistics that we have thought of just going to work themselves out and out and out until there's nothing left? We close our doors, we, we close our buildings, uh, and we're a distant memory. Or... Will it be possible somehow for God's people to survive in a world that's indifferent to them and hostile to them? Can we survive in exile? The biblical answer to that question is a resounding yes. God's people can survive in exile. And we know they can because they have already done it. The Jews, if you know your Old Testament at all, you'll know this that the Jews, God's people, were taken into exile when Nebuchadnezzar captured Jerusalem and burned down the temple in 586 BC. Suddenly, God's people were taken out of the, the context where they were the driving force, where they were the mainstream, where the, the Jewish worldview was the only worldview. And, and they were taken hundreds of miles from their homes and put down into to totally pagan godless contexts, strangers in a strange land, exiles. Well, we're going to, to spend the next three or four Sunday mornings looking at a short biblical book that tells a story about God's people in exile. It's the book of Esther. So as I've already invited you, have it open before you just now. Uh, page 501, Esther chapter 1. 
We're going to race through this, so having it open before you will help you not to, to lose your place entirely. In verse 1, we're told the exact context of this story we're about to read. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Xerxes, who ruled over 127 provinces, extending from India to Kush. Now, very few of us know much about the Persian Empire, but this, this was a big deal. The Persian Empire dominated most of the known world for a couple of hundred years. It began with the, the conquest of Babylon by Cyrus in 539 BC, and it was ended when Alexander the Great conquered Persia in 330 BC. So that's the era in which we're working. And, and Xerxes was one of the earliest kings in this empire. Now we're told that he ruled from India to Kush. Now that probably corresponds to an area between modern day Pakistan and northern Sudan. So this guy rules a huge chunk of the world and he rules from a place called Susa, a city that's located just about 100 miles north of modern-day Basra. We're told in the opening verses that he held a banquet in the third year of his reign. Now, if you look up the historical records that we have of this period, you'll find that this ties in with a great war council in 483 BC. It was held by the Persians who were planning to go and invade Greece. So Xerxes gathers together all the nobles, officials, military leaders, and princes from all over this, this massive empire. And he's only one object. He wants to gain their support for a military campaign. So the historian Herodotus, Herod, sorry, Herodotus, he records one of Xerxes' speeches for this great war council. And in the short excerpt, we'll get a flavor for what he says to these leaders. He says, for this reason, I have now summoned you together that I may impart to you my purpose. It is my intent to lead my army through Europe to Greece that I may punish the Athenians for what they have done to the Persians and to my father. As for you, this is how you shall best please me. When I declare the time for your coming, every one of you must appear and with a good will and whoever comes with his best, his army best equipped shall receive from me such gifts as are reckoned most precious among us. Xerxes is gathering together leaders from a huge empire. He's bringing them together. He's showing them his wealth. And why is he doing that? Because he says, if you're faithful to me and loyal to me, this wealth will be at your disposal. I'll use it to reward you. So that's what's going on here. One of the most powerful men in the world is gathering the leaders in his empire. In verses 5 to 8, we're told in more detail about a seven-day banquet that he has to round off the war council. We're told about the beautiful setting in the king's garden. We're told that there's an open bar Xerxes is clearly a force to be reckoned with. This, this man has a lot of power and a lot of wealth at his disposal. But there's a lovely irony underlying this grand description of, of Xerxes' court here that's lost on us as modern readers. Because 
Any early reader of this story would have known that Xerxes did, in fact, go to Greece, but that he was defeated there just four years after this great war council. It was a surprising defeat, and he lost a a whole lot of his wealth and his power. So at this moment in time that we're reading of here, when he's, he's got this big, great war council and this impressive banquet, he looks invincible. But history tells a different story. I think there's a lesson here for God's people in every age to learn afresh. And that is that the superpowers of our day are superpowers only in their own minds. The Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, they have all come and gone. In, in more recent times, Hitler's Third Reich and the Soviet Union, they've come and gone. These powers arise, and for a moment, they appear to be entirely invincible. I remember as a young child growing up, and I could not imagine a world without the, the Soviet bloc. It, it seemed to hold the world in a stranglehold. And how long ago was that? It's, it's gone. It, it's just a memory. Psalm 2 is the Bible's clearest comment on the superpowers of of the day. The psalmist asks, Why do the nations conspire? Why do the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Here in Esther chapter 1, it looks as though Xerxes is in total control. But we know different. We know that he's like any other leader of a world superpower. He's a puppet. And God holds the strings. The rest of chapter 1 is taken up with an incident that arose at the banquet. Xerxes has been together with the boys there seven days in his garden. And at the same time, Vashti's having a, a girl's night or a, maybe a girl's week, I don't know what it is, in the palace. And you can almost see the trouble coming here, can't you? It's, it's all a bit inevitable. The author uses characteristic understatement in verse 10. He says that on the seventh day, King Xerxes was in high spirits from wine. Now, he's been on a seven-day bender with his mates. Of course, He's in high spirits. I think that's, that's putting it mildly. And as is so often the case when, when alcohol gets the upper hand, he, he loses his senses entirely. He asks his servants to bring in the queen so that his mates can have a good look at her. He's impressed them with his wealth. He's impressed them with his hospitality. And now he wants to impress them with the, the beauty of his wife. We're not told why, but Vashti refuses. Now, put yourself in Xerxes' shoes. He spent half a year impressing everyone around them, showing what a big guy he is. The, the whole aim of this is to get an empire to obey him. And now his wife won't obey him. Puts him in a bad position. 
So the rest of chapter one is, is the, the debate between Xerxes and his officials. What are they going to do? Well, Xerxes calls a cabinet meeting and the, the fellows get together and they talk the incident over. They're worried here that, that news of the queen's defiance is going to be leaked to the nation and that all the women throughout the empire are going to follow suit. They're going to stop doing what their husbands tell them. Nightmare. So the cabinet ministers agree that something needs to be done and they present the king with a plan. Get rid of Vashti. Find a queen who will do what she's told and then send a message about that throughout the empire. That'll sort it. Problem solved. Now, it's daft, isn't it? It's the sort of thing that only a committee of men could dream up. The Bible suggests a better way for a husband to gain the support of his wife. In Ephesians 5, Paul says that wives should submit to their husbands. But he says that only in a context where both are submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Husbands, do you want your wives to submit to you? Do you? I'll not ask for a show of hands. Do you want your wives to submit to you? Then submit to them. Love them as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Focus on being the kind of men whom your wives would gladly submit to. Don't focus on exercising power like Xerxes here. Focus on demonstrating the character and, and the spirit of Jesus Christ. We pick up the story in chapter 2. By the way, as we work our way through Esther, we're not going to have a chance to read the whole thing, so we'll read parts, and then I'll just ask you to follow me as we skim through other parts. So have chapter 2 open before you. Sometime after all this has happened, the king and his advisor set about finding a, a replacement for Vashti. Do you remember the queen has been sent away? And they decide they'll do a Miss Persia contest. So they set up a, a bunch of regional heats. Uh, women in each area will be selected as the, the most beautiful in their area. And then the finalists will be brought together in Susa and the king will have his pick. Xerxes likes the idea, and he decides to go for it. No comment. Now, it's at this point that we're introduced for the first time to a couple of Jews who are going to become the key characters in our story. There's Mordecai and his orphaned cousin Hadassah. They're part of the Jewish community in Susa, God's people living in exile. Now, we're told that Hadassah, or Esther, to use the Persian name, is extremely beautiful. So she wins her regional heat of Miss Persia. She makes a big impression on the guy who's organizing the final. And with the right diet and the right beauty treatments, she rises right to the top and, and is given the, 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 really the position of the favorite in the king's harem. 
Now, one more thing about Esther. The narrator tells us in verses 10 to 11 that she's undercover. Mordecai, her cousin, has told her to keep her identity a secret. So no one in the palace knows that she's a Jewess. And in ways that we're not quite aware of yet, we sense that there's some sort of danger here. That being known to be a Jew could be a a dangerous thing in this Persian Empire. Verses 12 to 15 are interesting. Um, Get interesting insight into the beauty treatments of the time. The women in Xerxes' harem took 12 months, that's right, one calendar year to get ready for one night with him. Now, if you're the sort of fella who ever gets a wee bit impatient when you have to wait for 15 minutes when your, your woman's getting ready to go out for the evening, read that passage. Remind yourself of the one year and, and relax. Eventually, it does come Esther's turn to go to the king. And we're told in verse 17 that the king was attracted to Esther more than any of the other women. Esther has won. She is Miss Persia. She is going to be the the new queen in place of Vashti. And to mark the occasion, uh, Xerxes does what Xerxes seemed to do best, and that is he throws a party and declares a bank holiday. As we go through the book of Esther, we're going to reach some interesting places. And the book of Esther comes to us in the form of a story. And some parts of these stories, they're going to be hard for us to make, to, to work out what exactly we should make of them. There's a, there'll be ambiguity at a few points along the way. And at first, we're going to find that frustrating, particularly if we're the kind of people who think following Jesus Christ makes the world black and white. If we think deciding to follow Jesus is going to make life really simple and straightforward, all we have to do is obey, then we're going to struggle to live well in in the context we find ourselves in. And we're certainly going to struggle to understand this story of Esther. At this point, I think it's very hard to make of Esther and of the life that she's been drawn into. Now, what do we normally do with our our biblical heroes? We hold them up as examples. Okay, King David, be like King David. Yeah, right. Be a a murdering adulterer. Good, good stuff. Or, Or we might say, be like Esther. Well, in what way exactly do we want to be like Esther? Think about it for a second. What are you going to teach your 16 year old daughter about how to approach womanhood? from Esther chapter 2, what we've just read. What are the lessons that will stand out? Make yourself as attractive as possible to get yourself a, a powerful man. Use your body to reach people for Jesus. The end justifies the means. doesn't matter what you do uh, as, long as, as long as the outcome is right. Friends, we can't take Esther and use her as an example because the Bible doesn't encourage us to. Nowhere in the biblical narrative are we told be like Esther. Uh, And the author clearly doesn't want to hold her up as an example to us. Instead, what the author does is he describes for us a, a morally ambiguous 
and a complex scenario. It's just the kind of scenario that we live in day and daily in a fallen world. Let's close for this morning. We've only just been introduced to these people of God in exile and already we sense that they're not perfect. This isn't going to be a perfect congregation which we can look at and say, right, let's follow them. And we'll notice as we read on in this book that as well as not being, not being morally perfect, they aren't particularly godly either. One thing we're going to notice as we read the book of Esther is that the name of God won't appear in the whole story. So these people can't be examples to us. This community in exile isn't going to teach us how to live morally, and they're not going to teach us much about spirituality and our walk with God. But here's what they will teach us, and here's what we must learn. They'll teach us a valuable lesson simply by their existence. These folks, the Jews living in Susa, serve as evidence to us that the people of God survive even in exile. They'll survive against all the odds. They'll survive in spite of themselves. This community won't survive because it's it's theologically pure or religiously committed. It'll survive the way all communities of God's people always survive. By the grace of God. By the grace of God, the people of God in exile survived and the Persian Empire did not. Friends, the same is true of the church of Jesus Christ down through the ages and today. Jesus promised, I will build my church and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to reflect on your faithfulness to your people. Lord, your faithfulness doesn't depend on our morality. It doesn't depend on our, our energy and our commitment to you. But Lord, you are faithful to your people down through the ages because of your promises. Lord, as Toby reminded us this morning, as the children are learning in Sunday school, you're a God who has promised to build a people for yourself. Lord, empires will rise and fall. Sometimes we will be part of the mainstream of our society, and at other times we will live in exile. Lord, help us to be almost indifferent to all of that. And to remember instead your covenant with us. That you will never fail us. That regardless of our conditions and our surroundings. You will sustain a people for your name. 
thank you. Father God. Amen.